passage that we read earlier. It was on November 19th, 1976, which for me was almost 44 years ago that I was sitting in a service, much like you are this morning, but it was an evening service on a Friday night. Back then they had revival meetings and we had evangelist Glenn Schunk at our church. On that evening, I remember it vividly, uh, he spoke a message on hell like I'm going to speak to you this morning. You don't hear many of them anymore, um, but it was powerful. And what really moved me on that night was what it was like in hell. And and our passage talks about that, and and so do other passages that the Bible mentions, and especially Jesus, who talked more about hell than anyone in Scripture. It is a place of torment, a place of fire. It is a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of darkness, even outer darkness, a place where the worm does not die. It's everlasting. There is no escape. There is no remediation. Um, And on and on the scriptures go about how awful it was. And I remember being terrified uh, while I sat through that service. I went forward at the end of it. My Sunday school teacher in sixth grade took the Bible and showed me how I could know I was going to go to heaven. But As I grew up as an adult, I I came to the realization, and I think you will this morning, that as terrifying as what hell is like, um, is the other part of it, which I want to stress today, and that is who's going to be there in hell. Um, According to Jesus, and it might be strange to us, in fact, almost ironic and certainly paradoxical, that the people that Jesus warned most about going to hell were religious people. Again, in our context, think of the rich man as the Pharisee. Jesus warned people who thought they were righteous, people who called themselves God's people, like you and I do. He warned people who worshipped the same God as he did, people who knew the Bible that he knew, Um, people who went to the same, can I say, churches and the same synagogues and the same temple that he did. And Although they did all of these things, and can I say it nicely, their religiosity would put yours and mine to shame. They were much more orthodox, they knew the Bible far better than the average person today would, and they were far more committed to living it, in that sense, externally, outside of their worship context. And that's what a Pharisee was. A Pharisee was, and by name it means a cut above. They were kind of beyond everybody else in their religious fervor. And by all means, I should say, or by all things, as you look on the outside, Pharisees seemed like they were saved, um, but completely, completely different people on the inside. Um, Luke's gospel, to say the least, is a gospel of stories about reversals, um, and they are all over this book. Um, the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 In fact, anyone who said those two words together, good and Samaritan, if you were Jewish, would have been crazy to them because in their mind, uh, Samaritans were terrible people, unsaved people, ungodly people. But yet Jesus tells a story where the Samaritan, and he does it three times, is actually the hero of the story. 
and the one who actually helps the Jewish person on the side of the road. Jesus went on to say in Luke chapter 13 that the last would be first and the first would be last. And in the context, the people that ended up being last were Jewish and the people being first were Gentiles, which would have been an unheard of statement to make in that day. Jesus probably his most famous or... um, prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15 tells about a prodigal father who had two sons, the Pharisee type one who stayed at home and was righteous but was just as far away from his father, as we see in the end of the story, as the prodigal son who wasted all of his living with riotous living, it says, all of his life or all his money with riotous living. So Jesus tells that story, Pharisee and the tax collector story in Luke 18, about it's the Pharisee who prays how great he was compared to everybody else, and and the tax collector who just beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it's the tax collector who goes down to his house justified, not the Pharisee. Jesus can have lunch with anybody when he goes through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem in Luke 19. But of all the people who in good standing, you know who he chooses to have lunch with? Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And not just any tax collector, the chief tax collector. He chooses to have lunch with him because it's a gospel of reversals. Luke 21 When Jesus is standing in the temple watching all the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, go by the trumpet-shaped receptacles for money and pouring all their money into it, turns to his disciples and said, Sees this widow who has these two little copper coins called a mite. She puts it in because it's all she had. And he makes this astounding statement that she has put in more than all of them. Luke's gospel is just a story of reversals. And Jesus doesn't cut any corners. He says it straight to religious people. Here's what his stories mean. Let me read it for you. Luke 13, verse 29. In that place, meaning hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Watch this. Then you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves will be cast out. He's talking to the Jewish religious leaders. You're going to see all these Gentiles in the kingdom. You're going to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. But you, you're not going to make it. And the word he uses, strong language, cast out, is the very Greek word that is used for Jesus when he casts out demons out of people. It's the same word used in Revelation where it says that the beast and the false prophet and eventually Satan will be cast into hell. It means literally to throw or to hurl with violence. When Jesus says, you'll never get into the kingdom and you'll be thrust out. One of the most predominant themes as well as reversal that I want to mix in with this one today because it's in our text, that Jesus eats with everybody. I mean, it's all about meals and suppers and banquets that he goes through. And he tells in the reversal theme story, Luke 14, about a banquet that this rich man has. And he invites all these people and all the ones who are respectable and those who went to the synagogue and lived right and orthodox. And he invites all of them. But all these people he invites to his banquet, they make excuses about why they can't be there. And so none of them end up showing up. And so he tells his servants, go out into the highways and byways. And he says, invite everyone else who I would normally never invite. And it, it lists them as the lame and the blind and, and, and the unclean and all the ones that no one would ever invite to a banquet. He says, because I'm going to have my house be full, he says. So Jesus says there's a coming 
banquet. We would call it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he's inviting people. But the strange thing about it is, is the people who sit in church and hear the messages all the time and got the invitations are making all kinds of excuses, not so much with their lips, but with their lives about why they can't be there. And so Jesus says, then I'll take everybody else, the ones that you don't think would ever be invited to the supper of the master, and I'm going to invite them instead. So we come to our text in Luke 16, and there is a supper going on. See, the rich man, he noticed the Bible makes it very clear in the opening verses of the passage we read that he fared sumptuously every day. See, this man who says he knows God but ends up finding out that he really doesn't, well, he had his banquet, but his banquet was in this life. And he fared sumptuously every day, and he ate and had all everything he ever wanted to because the blessings of God to him were only things that took place in this life. But see, the beggar who sat at his gate, who couldn't even get crumbs from his table, and was never invited to his banquet, he has his banquet not in this life, but in the next, because he's in Abraham's bosom. He's in the place of reclining at the table, like John did with Jesus. He's leaning on Abraham's bosom, and they're having a feast and a party, and strange of all things, Lazarus is there, but the rich man, he's not. Now, that would have been crazy for anyone in first century culture, that a Jewish man who was rich, that was a sign of being blessed by God, that God's hand was upon you, that you were wealthy. But a Jewish man who was a beggar, the opposite of that, well, see, that's the sign that you've been cursed by God. You must have lived a life that was ungodly, therefore you're a beggar, which makes you unclean. You cannot go in the synagogue, you cannot go in the temple, and you are an outcast with men. And so Jesus says in the pretext of our passage that pharisees are people who love money and here's how they hide it they do things that exalt themselves before men but before god here's what it says they are an abomination god hates the way that they live and it's demonstrated by the result of their lives and so here's what happens to these two men who seemingly are polar opposites in life one dies the only place in scripture where it says the angels carry him, and I'm hoping that was the first but not the last because I'm looking forward to it and I hope that that happens, the angels carry us to heaven. Wouldn't that be fantastic for those of us who know Christ? But the other guy dies and there's no angels involved, only burial because that's the end for him and the relationship he has with God. And the Bible says that he lifts up his eyes and he's in torment but I don't want you to focus on just how bad hell is today. I want you to focus on who is there. Because if you would have said to anyone in Jesus' day that a son of Abraham that was Jewish in descent and had God's hand of blessing of righteousness and wealth on him would end up in hell, it would have blown their mind. And here it is. If anyone they thought would raise his eyes up and be in hell, it would be the beggar. But it's not. It's the rich guy. It's the religious guy. It's the self-righteous guy who everybody thought, well, if anyone's going to heaven, it had to be him. But he doesn't, and he wakes up in hell. And here's the word that describes him. He sees Abraham's bosom. He sees where paradise is. He sees the banquet here. But he's, here's the term, far off, it says in verse 23. He's not even close. And the distance is what makes it scary. The Bible says that Lazarus, or he sees Abraham and Lazarus afar off. It's the same word used twice in Ephesians 2, describing Gentiles who were born afar off from God because they were strangers to the covenant. It means between him and God, there's this huge distance. 
And isn't it, this is the scary part to me, that you can go in a church and listen to sermons, read your Bible your whole life, and think you're actually close to God, wake up in hell, and realize for the very first time that you're about as far from God as you possibly could be. That's the scary part. In Luke 18, just a chapter from ours, there's a story Jesus told, I referred to, told, I referred to it, where a tax collector's in the temple, and he's close to the altar, and he's praying and telling God how great he is. But you know who's far off in, the, in, in that story? The publican. He doesn't even get to the very inside the temple, and he can't go any further. You know why? Because he knows his life is a shambles, comparatively. But here's what Jesus said. The guy who thought he was close was really afar, and the guy who thought he was far off was really close. And it was the guy who was far off that went down to his house justified. It's a reversal. And the question is, this morning, for all of us, how in the world does that happen? It is going to be, my friends, and I have no doubts about it, it is going to be a shocker on Judgment Day that who is in and who is out. Luke's gospel is shock, fills us with shock and awe all the way through the gospel about who is really blessed, who is really right with God, and who really isn't. And I'm going to tell you, here's how it happens. For this rich man, the reason he died and went to hell because he was a son of Abraham physically, but he was not a son of Abraham spiritually. All throughout this text, Abraham And and the mention of who he is is emphatic. Maybe you've never seen it in this text, but let me point it out to you. Verse 22, it says Abraham's bosom. Verse 23, he's with Abraham afar off. Abraham, father Abraham, verse 24, he is called. Abraham says something in verse 25, verse 29. And then he calls him father Abraham again in verse 30. So here's the relationship he has. The man in hell is Jewish and Abraham is his father. He calls him father twice. Verse 25, Abraham calls him my child. So how can he have this relationship with Abraham as a father and a son? How can he be in the Jewish lineage be part of God's covenant people, and he raises up his eyes, and he's in hell. Because it never went any further in his life than on the outside. Shocker that a son of Abraham is in hell forever. See, both men were born Jewish. Both were circumcised. In fact, one was a law keeper, the Pharisee. The other one was a law breaker, But it's the beggar and not the rich man who ends up in Abraham's bosom. How is is that possible that the seemingly righteous guy goes to hell and the seemingly beggar, unclean guy goes to heaven? How is it possible? Because the rich man had a connection to Abraham physically, but he did not have a connection to Jesus spiritually. Do you hear that? See, it's possible that you have a connection religiously this morning because you're Baptist or maybe you grew up Catholic. Maybe you're Lutheran or Episcopalian or and you name the church title or the denomination and you think that I'm going to get to heaven and here's why. Because I have that connection. I'm religious. I'm here this morning. Aren't I, Pastor Walker? Of course you are. But the religious connection will not get you to heaven. It's the spiritual connection to Jesus, the Messiah, that you need. And Luke goes through, can I say, a lot of effort to make sure that we get this point. Can I show it to you real quickly? 
Luke 3.34 gives Jesus' genealogy. Now, in Matthew's gospel, he gives it up front. It takes him three chapters to get to it in Luke, and here's why. Because it says in verse 34 that Jesus is the son of Abraham. In other words, he's Jewish. Jesus is in the line. He is a descendant of Abraham. But watch this. But more than that, because the very passage, before it shows Jesus' connections to Abraham, is about his baptism in 321. And here's what it says. Not only is Jesus son of Abraham, but here's what God says at his baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Because Jesus is not just a son of Abraham. Jesus is son of God. See? Son of God. And see, that's the connection the man was missing. He had the Jewish part down. He was connected to Judaism, but he wasn't connected to Jesus. He was connected to Moses, but he wasn't connected to the Messiah. There are only, can I say this? There are only two places in Luke's gospel, in fact, any gospel or any place in the New Testament, that someone is called a daughter of Abraham or a son of Abraham. Only two, and they're both in Luke. One's in Luke 13 and one is in Luke 19. The one is, the lady is called a daughter of Abraham, but you wouldn't believe who it is. She's a woman who had a sickness for 18 years. She was bent over. The Bible says that a demon was to blame for it. For 18 years, she was controlled like this. She was bent over. She ha- but it says, but she's a daughter of Abraham. She had the physical connection. She had the religious part down. But that day, she met Jesus. And all Jesus had to do was touch her and say the words, and she was healed. And for the first time in 18 years, she stands up straight. You know why? Because she needed more than just the connection to Abraham. She needed the connection to Jesus. The only other person who's called the son of Abraham, that the only one, is, believe it or not, of all people, Zacchaeus. I mean, Jesus says salvation has come to his house today. Because he's also a son of Abraham. Now, Zacchaeus was born Jewish, but he did awful things with his life. And he compromised with the Romans and he ripped people off. And he was a lover of money, see, like the Pharisee is told in the beginning of our text in Luke 16. But that all changed the day that his connection to Abraham became the connection to Jesus. And that connection to Jesus made him more than just a son of Abraham physically. It made him a son of Abraham spiritually. Both of these people needed more than just Judaism, more than just their religion, more than just a denominational affiliation, more than just religious activity. Here's what they needed. They needed to be born again. See, you cannot be born into God's family. You must be reborn into God's family. And I've heard people all my life say, Pastor Walker, but I'm Catholic. And once you're in the Catholic Church, that's what does it for you. Or I'm Baptist, or I'm Lutheran. Or when I was a kid, I was infant baptized. I was catechized and all the other ides that there are out there. I've had people tell me where my parents were Christians. And I was raised in a good Christian home. And I went to the church. And I even said a prayer when I was 12. John 3 makes it very clear when Jesus has his evening talk with with Nicodemus. He says to him, you must be born again. To a guy who was a Pharisee and Orthodox more than you and I will ever think about being. Religious to the possible, to the nth degree. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, it's not enough. You have to be born again. Listen to Paul in Romans 9. Just listen. 
For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Hear that? And not all are are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Do you hear what he says? Just because you are born Jewish doesn't mean that you're really his offspring. Verse 9. For not all who are descended from Israel, he says, but verse 9, this means this, that not the children of the flesh are the children of Abraham, but the children of promise. So how, Pastor Walker, here's what I would say to you. You want to stay out of hell? You better become a son of Abraham. And for all of us who are Gentile in here, you would say that's impossible. Not at all. Not at all, because Jesus has come. Jesus has come, and now everyone, including Gentiles, can be a son of Abraham. Why? How is that possible? Here's what Paul says. You need the faith of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith. Hear that? Those of faith who are sons of Abraham. It doesn't matter about my genealogy. It doesn't matter whether I was physically born Jewish. It doesn't matter if I was born Baptist or born Catholic or all the things I've done. He says what you need to have is faith in Jesus. That's the connection. It's believing on him, trusting that Jesus' life, his perfect sinless life, and his sacrificial death and resurrection on the cross, that is the payment for my sins. Not trying to be self-righteous, not my good works hopefully outweighing my bad. It's not all the things that I do, Jesus would say, Paul would say. But it has to be about my connection with Jesus. In chapter 3 again in Galatians verse 29, and if you are Christ. Then you are Abraham's offspring. That's what makes the difference. You see, the rich man, he knew all about Moses and the prophets. But he never saw Jesus in any of the scriptures. And therefore, he rejected him. You know, it's interesting in Luke's gospel, two times the phrase Moses and prophets are used. Once in our passage, at the beginning and end, verse 16 and 31, he says, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets. But you know the only other time in Luke's gospel is? The very last chapter. Jesus is on the Emmaus Road with the two people, Cleopas and whoever else with him, right? And he says twice, verse 27 and 44, he says he opened up Moses and the prophets and he said, and they speak of me. You see, what they needed was not more of Moses and the prophets, but they needed to see Jesus in Moses in the prophets. They needed to have a connection to him, and that connection is faith. And you can hear sermon after sermon after sermon after lesson after message, and you can read the Bible for years, and there have been people who sit in our pews who heard that for 20 years and never really had their lives connected to Jesus. Well, Pastor Walker, how would I know How would I know that I'm a spiritual son of Abraham? How would I know that I have faith that connects me to Jesus? Is there any way that I objectively can understand what that means? Yes, there is. And Jesus talked about it. He says, not only do you need to have the faith of Abraham, but you need to have the works of Abraham that that faith produces. Can you look at John chapter 8 with me real quick? Please don't. Shut down yet, because this is the most important part. The Pharisees and religious leaders are going to make an argument with Jesus that all they need is Abraham as their father physically. Jesus is going to lay it on them as strong as he can. 
In John chapter 8, beginning in verse 39, here's what he says. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Same thing the rich man would have said in hell. And did. And Jesus said, listen to this. If you were Abraham's children, well, what marks them? You would be doing the works Abraham did. So it's a faith that believes Abraham had, but it's also a faith that behaves. In other words, it's not just intellectually assenting to facts that, oh, Jesus was God, he died on the cross, he rose again from the grave the third day. It's not just that I accept those facts because James says the demons believe and tremble. It is my life from the inside out, being transformed by those facts and those truths so that I live differently like Abraham did. See what the text says? But now you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham doing. That's not what Abraham did. Then Jesus says this, ready? You do the works of your father. This is harsh, but listen. Jesus says, you think your father is Abraham. Do you know who your father really is? The devil. (laughs) Really? Yeah, he said, should get used to it because that's who you're from. See, you're going to hell and the devil is your father. Now that would have blown their minds because they thought they were righteous and religious and had it all down and knew the Bible and synagogue And had all the externals right, but on the inside, they didn't have any of it down at all. Pastor Walker, what was Abraham's works like? James chapter 2, listen to me read it. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith By my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. That's orthodox. Even the demons believe and shudder. You want to be shown, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here we go. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith completed by his works. So the scripture was fulfilled, which said Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what did Abraham believe? That his righteousness came from God. And that belief changed his life and how he behaved. He lived sacrificially for God. He was willing to give up everything from God, even his only son that God promised him. You see, God took over his life, not just his destiny, but his desires and his deeds and everything about him. See, that's what people, it takes to stay out of hell. You have to be a son of Abraham. You have to have Abraham's faith that results in Abraham's works. And Jesus says, without that, your real father is not Abraham. It's the devil. Back to our passage, and I close. How did the rich man show that he had no Abraham's faith? He had none. In verse 24, here's what he says while in torment in hell. He hasn't changed one single bit even though he's in hell. You know why? Two times, verse 24 and 27, here's what he asked Father Abraham to do. Make Lazarus my errand boy. 
First off, send him so that he can put his finger in some water and put it on my tongue to cool me. Hey, send him because that's how he's always seen Lazarus. He's the guy who's set outside of his gate. He's a beggar. He's, he's, he sees himself as superior. He sees himself as better. He sees himself as full of righteousness. Even in hell, he can't get past himself. And all he sees people are is they're there to do his bidding and to help him and to get along in life better for him. And he still sees Lazarus. Just send him to send the water. Give me the water I need. And if that isn't enough, and, and he says, well, send, at least send Lazarus to my brothers so that he can give them the message that they'll repent and not come to this place of torment. See, he can't get out of his mind that Lazarus is down here and I'm up here. See, your faith vertically always shows up in the way you treat people horizontally. If you read 1 John 3, and we don't have time this morning, if you read 1 John 3, he says, here's the difference between children of God and children of the devil. You know what it is? They practice righteousness. What kind of righteousness? How they treat other people. Read 1 John. Vertically, here's how you know God. How you treat people horizontally. You know, on that judgment day we've been talking about, in Matthew 25, on that day the Bible says Jesus is coming with his holy angels and he will separate the sheep from the goats. The the goats on his left hand in the place of judgment and sheep on his right hand in the place of blessing and eternal reward. And you know what the Bible says, how he describes the difference between people who are saved and really not saved, people who go to hell and are going to heaven. You know what the difference is? It's not their orthodoxy, it's their orthopraxy. And here's what he says. See, when you saw people in jail and when you saw people and you never visited them and you didn't welcome them into your house and when they had real needs, you didn't meet those needs. And you, here's what he says. When you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. But he says, here are my, here are my sheep. And he goes, but when did we see? He said, when you, when you visited those in jail who were standing up for me, when they needed clothing and food and you provided it and you showed them into your house and you did all, he says, when you did it unto the least of these, my brothers, you did it unto me. And the guy, the rich man, you know why he went to hell? Because he didn't have Abraham's faith and he didn't have his works. You know why? Because every single day he walked by a beggar sitting at his gate and did nothing. You know why? Because he didn't love people. He loved money. Oh, he didn't beat Lazarus up. He didn't kick him. He didn't make his life more miserable. You know what he did? Nothing. He just ignored him. He just acted. He was so busy with his own life and everything he was doing with his own money, he never even saw him hardly sitting there. That's not the works of Abraham, Jesus says. So let me ask you, Are you a son? Are you a child of Abraham? Do you have a connection to Jesus? Do you have Abraham's faith? And do you have the works that it should produce? Because Abraham believed and he behaved and he demonstrated by his life, not because he earned his salvation, but he demonstrated his salvation was real because of the way he did. See, without that, then far more scary than what hell is like is the fact that you might be going there. Let's close in prayer.
with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around this morning, if you're here in our service or you're watching, if you are concerned for your soul, Jesus, it's okay to be afraid. Did you know that? Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body only, but those who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. If you're religious this morning, please beware. If you sit in this church all the time and know the Bible and all the verses and can quote the Romans Road and even had some sort of experience in prayer that you said early in your life, please do not take confidence in that. The Bible is very clear that that should never be the basis of anyone's assurance. The assurance comes from a connection with Jesus by faith that you're trusting in him and him alone and his righteousness and what he did on the cross for you when he died and rose again to pay for your sins. And it's that connection that results in a reflection. It's a connection that changes the way that you live from the inside out, your desires and your deeds, that your life is different, not perfect, but different, not odd different, God different. That's the assurance If you don't have that assurance this morning, please, would you stop by this week and make an appointment in the offering, in the the office, to come by and see us? Don't risk heaven and hell and not get it taken care of. Father, may we never be religious unless our religion is a result of our righteousness in Jesus. I pray for those this morning who might be here and may not be spiritual sons of Abraham. They don't have a connection by faith in Jesus that has resulted in a life that has changed and works that demonstrate it. Father, I pray that you might give them brokenness and humility, that they might seek you in the cross. They might humble themselves under the mighty hand of God that you might exalt them as you see fit. And lastly, I say thank you for Jesus. We were hell-bound sinners, and you rescued us by your mercy and grace, of which we are undeserving and unworthy of. Thank you for your love, your lavish love. May others by faith come to be connected to that today for your glory and honor. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, and we'll close by singing, Take My Life and Let It Be.